When you hold your psalm book, your book of praise in your hands, you are holding in your hands one of the best tools for evangelism. Because in it you have the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's specifically that good old Heidelberger, which is a great tool to use in evangelism. Evangelism, of course, is telling people the good news. And what the Heidelberg Catechism does is it it takes the facts of Scripture, the facts of the story of salvation, and it echoes the Scripture. It confesses the Scripture as it gathers and organizes the doctrines from Holy Scripture, from texts throughout the Bible. And so if you haven't yet used the Heidelberg Catechism and you're witnessing to other people, I would encourage you to begin using it because it starts at the right place. Evangelism has to start at the right place or it's not going to get anywhere. It starts with the problem. No sense telling people about the solution if they don't know there is a problem, they don't know what the problem is. People need to know the problem first. You know, often we're, we're afraid to talk about the problem. Often we're afraid to talk about sin and the fall and, and total depravity. And often, as we try to reach out to other people, we, we try to meet them where their needs are. They're lonely. So we say, well, if you come to Jesus, you won't be so lonely. We're, we're a great bunch of people. We're friendly, and you'll have a million invitations for coffee on Sundays. Or people are having trouble with a job or uh, they don't have enough income or they're, they're sick and then we try to bring the gospel to them on, on that level and say, well, when you're sick, you need comfort. So why do you become a Christian? Or why do you consider Jesus? I mean, the last thing you want to do is talk to somebody that's dying of cancer or, or that's just had an accident or just lost a loved one and start talking about the fact that they're a sinner. That's really, really awkward, isn't it? And yet, if we don't start in the right place, we're not going to end up in the right place either. We're going to start trying to attract people through entertainment or or promise of access to the massive amounts of social capital that there are in Christian and Reformed communities. But evangelism isn't about bringing people to the church in the first place or merely Evangelism must seek in the first place to bring people to Christ. And so don't be afraid of the hard things, the hard truths. Once the person we're witnessing to has come to understand that they are a lost sinner, the rest will come almost naturally. It will come a lot Easier. So I'd encourage you to use this tool to structure your thinking and your presentation of the gospel. Don't be afraid to use the catechism. Then go to the texts which the catechism brings forward as supports for what it's confessing. Read those texts. Speak those texts into the lives of the people you're witnessing to. Write them down on cards and and notes and and letters and emails. Give them for reflection. Encourage them to, to engage with what the Word is saying and to respond to it. The Word of God is living and powerful. It penetrates where your arguments and where your explanations cannot go. The Word of God 
goes deep into the soul. So use the word. It's a sword. It cuts to life. It cuts to death. But it always cuts. It always does something. It softens or it hardens. It never returns empty. It always accomplishes God's purpose. When God speaks, things happen. And so use those texts. Use the catechism as a structure. Go to the scriptures that the catechism draws from and speak that, those words of God into the lives of the people that you're witnessing to. Well, we, we looked at Lord's Day 2 last week and we compared our situation after the fall in Adam, our situation to a train wreck. We've been knocked off the rails. We've knocked ourselves off the rails, those twin rails of love God and love your neighbor. And so when we come to Lord's Day 3 today, the question is, well, whose fault is that? Like, who made this happen? Who's responsible for what happened? And the questioner in the catechism, especially in these first questions and answers, is trying to escape the harsh truth about his sin and his responsibility for it. So he tries every method he can think of to escape and to weasel out of the situation which he's in. And so what he does here in Laws A3 is he's, he throws it at God and says, well, if that's the way things are, then maybe it's God's fault. Didn't God create man so wicked and perverse? And you know, that's a common accusation which sinful fallen man levels against God. You read books, you read articles, you read scholarly papers, you read social media, you talk to people, and you often hear variations on the same theme. If there is a God, then look at the world he made. What kind of a God would make a world in which little children die of terrible diseases? What kind of a God would make a world in which, just like I think it happened just yesterday, that little 13-year-old girl is murdered by another teenager just here in Edmonton. Who, what kind of a God would make a world like that? So we throw it at God. And they say, you know, he's a cruel tyrant, if there is a God. He's a cruel tyrant who seems to get pleasure out of suffering and out of evil. Well, we're believers. We know the true story. We know the, the facts of the matter. And we know how terrible this accusation is. Not only have we plunged God's good creation into brokenness and pain, the pain of sin and the pain of death, but we have the audacity to blame God for the destruction we've brought about. And to go back to our example of the train track and the, the, the locomotive and the wagons that went over the, the trestle bridge and landed in the ravine below, broken on the rocks. It's like scrambling out of the locomotive after we've on purpose made this happen and looking at the situation, looking at the broken rails and looking at the wrecked train and saying, wow, like the owner of the train company and the owner of the railroad, why did he make things like this? Why did he do this? And of course, that would be absolutely absurd. We know very well that it's we who have done it. What is the truth? Well, the truth, the catechism 
confesses from the scripture. God created man good and in his image. Not corrupt, not wicked, not perverse, good and in his image. That means reflecting his character. You read Genesis chapter 1 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, and in the creation account, it says over and over and over, God saw what he had made, and behold, it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. It's seven times, and finally at the end, it was very good. And in that perfectly good creation, God made perfectly good human beings, a man and a woman. And they're made in his image. That means they reflect the character of God. They are righteous and they are holy. And we can kind of figure that out because the whole question of what does it mean to be the image of God isn't laid out and defined in so many words in Genesis 1. But we can figure that out a little bit when we go to Ephesians 4, verse 24. If you have a chance to look at that, 424 of Ephesians where the, the Lord is teaching us what it looks like when God takes away our fallen nature and makes us, gives us a new nature. He renews us, so he gives us a new start. And what does that look like? Well, look at Ephesians 4.23, it's page 978 in your pew Bible. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So true righteousness and holiness are connected with reflecting the character, the image, the likeness of God. And then we have another aspect which the apostle brings out in Colossians Colossians 3 verse 10. Colossians 3.10, which is Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians 3.10, that's page 984. And here, again, the apostle is speaking about uh, putting on the, the new self, so being made new, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So righteousness and holiness is one aspect of the image. Knowledge is another aspect of being made in the image of God. What does that mean, knowledge? Well, you remember what the Lord Jesus says in John 17. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing in the scriptures, not just intellectual facts in your head, uh, ordered in your head, in your, in, your, in your memory, but knowing as having an intimate relationship with. And that reflects God's character, because from all eternity, he lives in an intimate relationship of knowledge and love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. And when he makes us as perfect human beings, we get to share, we get to reflect that character of God, righteous, holy, knowing and being known. First of all, knowing God and knowing one another, an intimate, loving relationship. That's what the Bible teaches us about how God made things. And he did all of this so that we could do our job. What's our job? Our job is to praise and glorify God. We began the service singing Psalm 8, and Psalm 8 just says, God, you made us for your glory. You made us to worship you. Even the little babies, the little inarticulate sounds they make bring you glory and praise. So, to use our train 
example again. When God made the world, God made the first human beings. He put the tracks down. He put the locomotive and the wagons on the tracks. Those two tracks of love God, love your neighbor. Everything was ready, perfect, beautiful, new, working order. Everything optimized for traveling along those twin rails of the love of God and the love of the neighbor unto eternal glory, eternal joy, eternal communion with God and with each other. Everything was provided for man to do what man was made to do. God didn't hold back any resources or anything that we needed to do what we were made to do. But what happens when you take something that is made for one function and use it for something it's not made for? What happens? What happens, for instance, if you're trying to hang a picture and you need to hammer a nail in and the the, the hammer is in the basement and you actually don't remember exactly where you left it? but your wife has a beautiful new crystal vase on the table. I think I've used this example before. And you take that vase, which is made, its function is to beautify the room and to have flowers in it. And you say, well, I'm just going to quickly use it to hammer this nail in. Well, what's going to happen? You don't have to have a a very um, productive imagination to realize that that's not going to be a good thing. It's going to break. It's going to smash into pieces. If you take a crystal vase and use it as a hammer, you have a problem, you have pain, you have brokenness, and even more when your wife comes home and finds out what you did. And that's the way it is with human beings. Human beings were made with a function, with a purpose. We were made to live to the praise and glory of God. And when a human being doesn't live to the praise and glory of God, that's like a crystal vase being used as a hammer. And it's going to hurt. There's going to be brokenness, there's going to be pain, there's going to be ugliness. And that's what we see in the world. We see it in our own lives when we choose to sin, when we fall into sin. And we see it how much more in the world which turns its back on Christ. That's the fact of the matter. And what we believe in, what we confess in the catechism and what we echo from the scriptures, these are not, this is not some kind of mythological uh, narrative that we've made up to try and help us limp through life. These aren't some interesting philosophical or religious ideas which kind of make us feel better and which we share with one another. No, these are the facts of reality. This is the way things are. So God made us good. So then the question is, and that question answer seven brings us there, well, if God didn't make things the way they are, then where does the problem come from? What happened? Where did man's depraved nature come from? So we're at question answer seven now. And the answer is very simple. Even the little children know that. It comes from the fall and disobedience. We know the story. Genesis 1, Genesis 2 leads to Genesis 3. We know what Paul says to the Romans in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Because all sinned. We know that Adam and Eve took the fruit, they disobeyed God, and they brought sin and death into the world. And that didn't just affect them, because when they became sinners and their very natures were corrupted, then they passed that on to every generation which came after them. And you see that in the genealogy there. I think it's in Genesis chapter 5, if I remember correctly, where... uh, 
over and over and over, you have that refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died. The wages of sin is death. So fish give birth to fish. Dogs give birth to dogs. Sinners give birth to sinners. We mentioned that last week. We, We don't become sinners because we do something. But we do wrong things because we are born that way. David confesses that in Psalm 51. I was conceived and born in sin. So let's go back to the analogy of the train wreck. Now that beautiful train and the rails and everything all nicely set up there, that was the human race, the locomotive then would be Adam. Adam is the the federal head, the covenant head of the human race. And where he goes, he pulls the whole train with him. That's the way it works. And so the entire human race and all all the wagons hitched to this train or all the generations of humans throughout history, they share in the accident just as much as the locomotive. That's the way it works. To use something a little bit more organic, if you fall face forward, head first into a sewage lagoon up in the farm country, and you're stuck upside down with your head in that lagoon, your feet might be in the air and not in the lagoon. That doesn't make a a lick of difference. You're very, very uncomfortable for a few moments until you're dead. Because what happens to your head has consequences for the entire body. And so what happens to this locomotive has consequences for the entire train. Now, Maybe if you look at this accident, there's a long line of wrecked carriages, and maybe some of them are scattered along the hillside, up the mountain, closer to the rails. Maybe some of them are still a little bit touching the rails. It doesn't make a difference. The train's wrecked. And even the ones that are still touching the rails in some way, they can't go to where they're supposed to go as long as they're hitched to that smashed locomotive on the rocks below. So that's the problem. We're in Adam. That's our problem. Because being in Adam is to be in sin, to be in the flesh. And that brings us to question answer eight, which is our last question and answer for this Lord's Day. And the questioner is always looking for a way out, of course. And he says, well, like, okay, so it's bad. It's not God's fault. It comes from our sin. But really, come on, are you telling me that, like, we're so bad? Is it... We're totally unable to do any good, inclined to all evil. That's a little bit much, isn't it? Doesn't it seem a bit much? Well, we looked at some texts last week that demonstrated how bad it is. And it is bad. What does Job 14.4 say? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. And to go back to the train, we... We can't get this train mainly back on track and and moving to our destination by just really, really working hard and moving a few carriages back onto the the rails. The questioner in the catechism says, well, well, can't we do that? And the answer is, no, we can't. And so the questioner says, well, is it a total write-off? And the answer is, yes, it is. We can't avoid, we can't escape the fact. Scripture teaches it and the world around us confirms it. If you just look at the world around us, the fallen world constantly proclaims the biblical truth. The wages of sin is death. 
The wages of sin is death. Every painful newspaper article about every human catastrophe is preaching that same gospel truth. The wages of sin is death. What you sow, that you shall reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That's the law of the universe, the created universe. Now, we have a hard time swallowing that. It it seems so unpleasant and so unkind and maybe judgmental because we know unbelievers who are nice people. Sometimes nicer than some Christians we know. And we know unbelievers that do nice things. So doesn't that count for something? Doesn't that count for something? Is it really that bad as we confess here in Lord's Day 3, question answer 8? Well, it's good to be nice. It's good to do nice things. But when we evaluate who is nice and what a nice thing is, we're comparing within our limited, fallen frame of reference. And of course, compared to worse people, nice people are better. And compared to doing worse things, doing nice things is better. But that's the problem, isn't it? We can walk around that train wreck that humanity is in its fallenness. And we can say, well, this wagon is a little less beaten up than the other one. And that may be true. But we need to compare with the right standard. And the the standard is not being less bad than the others. The standard is the most perfect, most holy law of God. What does God require? Perfect, constant, total love of God and love of the neighbor. The requirement is that we be on the tracks and moving to the destination And if we do what humans like to do, fallen humans, if we rip off of some of the rails, bring them down the embankment to the crash scene, touch them to the wheels of a few wagons, we may say, wow, look at that. This wagon is on the rails, and it's better than the other wagon that's not on the rails. But we're just fooling ourselves. Not even the greatest act of kindness or sacrifice is pleasing to God, unless it be done out of true faith, in accordance with the law of God and to his glory. And no human being living outside of Christ is able to do something like that. What does the Bible say? All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none that does good. No, not one. That's what God says. And that trumps any ideas or experience that we may think we have. It's just a painful truth. But it's so good to hear. And it's so good to know. Because when we come face to face with this most horrifying truth about our total corruption, our total inability, and our absolute inclination to all evil, when we come face to face with the very core of the problem, then finally we are ready to hear 
the good news, the gospel. And we see that note of gospel come in in the answer of question eight, in that word, unless. Oh, yes, that's who we are, says the answer. Unless. Unless something happens. Unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God, that will change everything. That's the way out. That's the solution. What does it mean to be regenerated? Literally, the word regenerated means to be reborn, to be born again, to have a new start, to have a new beginning. And so what happens to this train wreck of a human race that we are in our fallenness and lostness? The Holy Spirit of God does what we could never even begin to imagine to be able to do. He takes us. He lifts us up. He sets us back on the track. He repairs things. He hitches us to a new locomotive, not the locomotive of Adam, but one who is called Christ, who will draw us along with him and lead us into eternal glory. And he, the Spirit fixes the rails and hammers us back into shape and fixes us. And as we kind of squeak along and there are things that still need repairing and replacing He takes those screaming crooked wheels and takes them off and puts better ones on that work. Yeah, we need radical repair. And the radical repair is never going to be able to come from us. What do we sing in Psalm 14? Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. Because that's where the temple is. Because that's where the Lord is present amongst his people. Oh, that God would work salvation with his mighty arm. And so that's where the answer is. That's the prayer which God answers. We need radical repair. We need the sovereign power of God to lift us up, to place us back on those twin rails of of love God and love your neighbor. We need divine power to disconnect us from the locomotive of fallen Adam, the flesh and fallen lost humanity, and to connect us to the new head of the renewed human race, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only hope for sinners. That's the only hope, the only way out of our problems. There is no other way to get to our destination. We need the work of the Spirit. We need it daily, and our children need it. You know, have you noticed, if you turn to page 591, the baptism form, have you noticed what we confess every time? It's not 591, it's a little further. 597. If you notice every time we read the, the baptism form, the baptism of infants, look at that first big paragraph there. First, we and our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore by nature children of wrath so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. That's Lord's Day 2, Lord's Day 3 right there. This is what the immersion in or sprinkling with water teaches us. It signifies the impurity of our souls so that we may detest ourselves, humble ourselves before God, and seek our cleansing and salvation outside of ourselves. So we, our baptism testifies to us a lot of things. 
one of the things our baptism reminds us is that outside of Christ, we are lost. Our only hope is for the power of Almighty God to come into our hearts, to come into our lives, and to work new life, to give us a new heart. And our children need a new heart, just like every one of us needs a new heart. And people outside of the covenant community need a new heart as well. They need to know the power of the Spirit of God who transforms dead sinners into living children of God. So what do we do if we know this to be true? What do we do when we're struggling with sin? When we're trying to deal with the brokenness, the little miniature reflections of the great fall of the human race, we we go through these, these reflections and these echoes of the fall in our own lives, don't we? We sin and it hurts. We sin and it breaks things. It breaks relationships. It breaks hearts. It, it, it breaks trust. It destroys minds and bodies and souls. What do we do when we sin? How do we deal with it? Well, the Bible is very clear on that. We don't try to fix it because we can't. Don't try, cry. That's what we're going to do. Don't try, cry. Cry out to God. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. Do it for yourself. As you fight with your struggles, with your addictions, with your sin, with your temptations, you can't beat it. Cry, God, change my heart, change my affections, change my desires. I want to come to the point, Lord, where I don't even want to sin. I'm just not interested in sin, but I can't do that. You need to change my heart. And pray it for your children, brothers and sisters. Cry out to God for your children. Oh God, give my children a new heart that they love Jesus and they hate sin. Work faith in them, strengthen faith in their hearts, connect them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the core of a godly and biblical upbringing. When we bring up our children with rules, they're going to do all the right things. They're never going to be quite good enough. And we're gonna, it's like demanding those wrecked train wagons to get themselves back up onto the tracks. It's not going to happen. They need the sovereign, all-powerful work of the Spirit of God to happen in their hearts and lives. And we need it. Our kids need it. And so do our family, our friends, our neighbors, our acquaintances who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. They need the same thing. They need a new heart. They need regeneration. They need radical repair that only the Spirit of God can work. So don't encourage them to clean up their lives so they look more Christian. That's not the point. Don't encourage them to look more like us. Well, hey, look at our marriage. It's pretty stable. Like, why don't you be more like us? If you come to our church, maybe you will be, be, be like us. That's not the point. If you really love them, if you really desire their life and salvation, then ask God to confront them with their sin so that they are driven to the only answer, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Speak the word into their lives because where the word is spoken and read and heard, there the spirit is at work. Share scripture texts. Read the Bible with them every chance you get. Say, hey, do you mind if I can just read a verse or two with you? This is the Word of God. And the Word of God changes things. Let me read with you, please. Pray for opportunities 
to invite them into the workshop of the Holy Spirit, where they will hear the very voice of God speaking to them in the preaching of the gospel. Here is the answer to all of our problems, the resolution to all of our griefs and pains and suffering, because here the Spirit of the living God is at work, bringing dead sinners to life, uniting believers to Christ, renewing, restoring, healing, repairing. And the better you understand the problem, sin, total corruption, the more you will eagerly desire and seek after the solution, the work of the Holy Spirit of God. When you understand that, then know this, brother and sister. The scripture says this, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me And find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. What is he telling us? Don't try to fix things yourself. But cry. Amen.